And welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. Hey, and I am Eric. This is another odd show. It's number 79, the big 79. And we're actually changing things up yet again. For most of the show, we'll be talking to Liz Potter and Amy Elizabeth about the fallacy of the sunk cost fallacy and why we shouldn't just give up on a project that's pissing us off. I'll also tell you a little bit about the whole earth photos. And later I'll do a, uh, there'll be a zine review or two, but first, Vanya, it's been a week. How you doing? Oh, I'm just fabulous. <laughs> oh, is that so? No, actually, it's been a little bit chaotic, but as far as film photography, uh, I feel like I am just kind of waiting for the inspiration and for things to be out of boxes. I am packing up, kind of moving out, so things are a little nutty. I kind of have to look at my collection of cameras and maybe say goodbye to a few unfortunately yeah (laughs) we'll see we'll see wow okay that's a big deal (laughs) it is a big deal it is but also i have been slowly giving cameras away uh, mostly just 35 uh to marley's friends who are jazzed about film photography Mm -hmm. and that makes me really really excited so i know they're going to good homes i just gave away my xc7 which I've had for a very, very long time. And um, I've shot a lot of great pictures on it. And someone is going to uh, kind of pass the torch. And she's going to, she is very, she goes to all of Marley's shows, takes pictures. I gave her a little flash, even kind of talked to her a little bit about how to like shoot at night. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's very exciting. That's good. It's, it's, you're getting rid of the cameras, but you're passing them along. Yes. You're not just dumping them in a gutter somewhere. No, no. definitely not. I would never, <laughs> never do that. It's been a long time since I've gotten rid of a camera. I can't remember the last one I got rid of. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I'm still I'm still waiting for the bicycle camera. I'm hoping that will come my way eventually. Eventually it Actually, might. you don't have to get rid of cameras because you guys, he just mails them or gives them to me to hold on to. That's I have two of your exactos. Oh God, you can keep I those. have your Mamiya 645. <laughs> Do you have my Topcon? No. Okay. I must have that Do somewhere not. then. Those are like Uh-oh. fetching a lot of money now for some reason. They're great cameras, oh, but like they're like weird. doubled in price since I, since I got mine. And I, I don't know why. I mean, they're good cameras, but I don't know why specifically. Hmm. So if you know, write us at uh, allthroughlens.podcast on Instagram and tell me why our top con's expensive now. <laughs> exactly. So that's me. How about you? How have you been? I've been okay. Uh, and I said last week that I hadn't shot a single frame since Christmas. And that was true then. That is no longer true. Ooh, I good. went out and continued a project with Sarah Leopold that we stopped like one year ago last year. I hadn't shot together in a year. And so it was going out along the Duwamish River in Seattle and and taking, I think we took 
10 photos. And it's like a collaboration where we both are using the same camera and, and deciding on which lens to use and even which camera to use and which, which, you know, composition and what should be in focus, what should be not in focus and all of that. It's a full collaboration. It's interesting. I, I definitely enjoy the process mm-hmm. and it was nice to get out. I, I, I was super rusty <laughs> and I probably <laughs> still am. It, it was very, I wouldn't say a difficult shoot because that makes it sound like it was a bad time, but it was hard like thinking photography again after being away from it for going on three months, you know? I haven't yeah, used a four I can understand by five that. in, you know, since I think November. Mm. So it was, you know, thinking upside down is, um, it takes a little bit of getting used to again. Yeah. Yeah, but I had a good time. So I'm, I'm planning on, on going out again uh, to shoot. It, it pained me to not go across the Cascades into Eastern Washington. And I'm, I'm hoping to do that. The time change is happening at some point. I can't remember when, but- Is it Monday? It was never a Monday. But okay. it's happening either this Sunday or Sunday. next Sunday. But I think it's. I will figure that out. Yes. And uh, then I will start traveling out east, and just I need to get out. I need to hike. I've been kind of dying, not hiking. Ugh. I've been like looking at hiking boots, and I don't need hiking boots, but I've been looking at them because, well, like trail runners. You know, I've been looking at like, oh, this would be great. This would be good for this time of year. This would be good for this place, and I need to get out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I went surfing today actually. Hmm. And it was <laughs> I was very I, I paddled out and someone asked me a question and I had to like pretend like I wasn't out of breath <laughs> <laughs> from just paddling out. I was like, oh my gosh, what is happening here? Yeah. I I get it. I think most people feel like that, you know, just winter, we're all kind of stuck inside for the most part, even though, you know, well, you're maybe in more LA, than others. So. Shut up. All right. I knew you were going to say that. Just <laughs> let me be. Well, you, we'll hear from people like, well, like Jess in Canada who goes out snowshoeing because yeah, the fuck. And so people are doing things all winter and I'm like, oh, it's a bit rainy. I think I'll stay inside today. Yeah, Exactly. It's just dumb. It's dumb. I, my plan was to go out like to Eastern Washington every month over the winter. And mm-hmm. it's always like, ah, it's a bit cold. I don't think I'll do that. <laughs> I'm such a wimp. Yeah, it's okay. I am too. <laughs> well, before we start the show, I need to do a little bit of housekeeping. And that housekeeping this time is a reminder of our answering machine question. You've got about a week from when you're hearing this to get it in, I think, or maybe it's about a week to get it in. And that question this time around, Vanya, what is it? If you could start your own indie photography book publishing house, tell us about it. I, okay, let's talk a little bit about the question. I got this question yeah. from the Dead Milkman. Here's a little little insider hint here. I steal a lot of our questions from the Dead Milkmen. Every week <laughs> on Saturdays, they do a big questions with the Dead Milkmen. And a lot of their questions are are like this, kind of thought-provoking, like what would you do type of questions. Mm-hmm. And the ones that aren't like specifically about music, I, I use for photography. And ones that are specifically about music, 
I, I make about photography. <laughs> and so their question was, what kind of label would you do, like a record label? And so I thought, well, you yeah. know what? It, it's not as applicable to photography, but I think it is a little bit. If you could do this, maybe maybe think of it as like, if you could publish a like a compilation zine, you know, like a, an anthology zine, what would that be? You know, that mm -hmm. may have been a better question actually, but here we are. <laughs> if that is your answer, that then that's fine too. Cause I think they're kind of the same thing when it comes down to it, you know, just one's mm -hmm. a bit larger. So the deadline for this is Tuesday, March 21st. I am as always afraid that nobody will answer. So please prove all of my worrying pointless. I would be very happy if you did that. Do you have a, an answer for that in your head already, Vanya? Oh, uh, yeah, for the most part. I think it has something to do with the Everything I Like store. Ooh, okay. I'm, I'm interested to hear all about that. Well, you're going to have to find out later, but deadline March 21st. So make sure to DM your answers. Okay, Vanya. Yes. When do you think the first photo of the Earth was taken from space? Okay. I thought what what you asked me what was the first photo of the moon no. for some reason, I, I, and you did not say that. Okay. No. We are, <laughs> but we are, I'm assuming it was like the first time we went up into the sky, I guess, with the Hasselbloods. I don't know. Well, actually, it's an interesting, the, the, what you posed was like, when was the first moon picture taken? That's, I'll have to look into that. I do not know that. So if any of our listeners know when the first picture of the moon was taken, uh, message us at allthroughlens.podcast on Instagram. I do know. It's like, or it's, it's in there. It's just real deep. You know what I mean? It's been a while. Okay. Well. <laughs> but to, no, so I don't, I don't know the answer to this and one. That's okay. And it's actually not what we're talking about today. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> what we're talking about perfect. today is when the first photo of the earth was taken from space. Ooh. Uh, what is and isn't space is, there's a few different definitions. We're not gonna really get into that today, and that's fine. So the first photo taken of Earth, and it doesn't, I don't mean the whole Earth at this point, was on October 24th, 1946. It was something we talked about before. It was a 35 millimeter movie camera aboard a V2 rocket. And it was of a very small section of the earth and, it, and it, it was so close that it barely showed the curvature. Like if you were a flat earther, this would not convince you. <laughs> so how they did it with the V2s was neat because this was film hmm. and it was a rocket that went up and just went, I don't know where it went, went somewhere. It came back down at some point, but the film did not come back down with the rocket because the film was ejected from the rocket. Yes. And took a little parachute back to earth. <gasps> Like the rocket cam. Well, we did the 110 exactly rocket cams. Like and so someone out and retrieved it and developed it. And there we are. We had our first picture of Earth from space. It was just a little bit of a, of a, of a corner of Earth, a corner, I guess, a sliver of Earth. <laughs> so a year after that, in 1947, they 
somehow arranged the V2 rocket so that it would take a bunch of different pictures, like a motion picture camera. And they took those pictures and they made a panorama. They stitched them together, made a panorama of the earth. And it was several photos put together. And at that point you could see the curvature, but it wasn't like the whole earth at that point. You know, it was like a, it was, it was kind of ugly looking and weird. So (laughs) we'll fast forward then to 1954 And that's when NASA made its first color photo mosaic of half the Earth. It was 117 images taken at an altitude of 100 miles. Wow. Yeah. And so they would, I don't know exactly, I don't remember which rocket, or it might've been a satellite, 100 miles, it would be a satellite. So it was a satellite that took 117 images and these were not on film. These These were like radio television signals essentially i know that's oh. probably not exact and and so if you guys know what that is don't don't bother messaging us um <laughs> it's it, i can find the answer right here in this book that i have okay so so far all of these were taken by machines whether it's the machine of a 35 millimeter movie camera mm-hmm. or a satellite or whatever it was taken by a machine the first human to take a snap to you know take a snapshot of the earth was cosmonaut german titov i love that word cosmonaut it's kind of yeah it's the best i why don't we use that anymore well it it was a soviet thing we never used oh yeah it was astronaut you're right yeah um but his photos look surprisingly like the uh the photos we've already seen you know they're kind of Hmm. grainy and blurry and it was of the earth but he was 150 miles away so it was kind of the same angle. You know, you couldn't get any much more of the earth in in the camera. And that's the whole problem, right? You had to get way the hell away from earth to get an entire shot, right? Yeah. Even from the International Space Station, that's about 250 miles from earth. They can't get a whole earth photo. They're too close. They're, Interesting. So for some reason, I don't know how this works. The lenses aren't wide enough. Which is, okay, sure. (laughs) So still unable to get humans far enough away, the Soviet Union launched the Moninia satellites in 1966. Uh, They first traveled to a distance of 25,000 miles away from Earth and snapped a shot. Wow. It looks like shit. But that was the first full disk single image of Earth. Still taken by a okay. machine, mm-hmm. but that was our first. I don't know. I, okay, I don't. I don't know who got to see this photo. I don't know if they released it widely. They may have. It would make sense for them to do that, but I don't know. They were like, "We just, we did yeah. it. You're just gonna have to trust yeah. us." So you can't find it online, is what you're telling you, me. You can. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. Okay. Um, you can see it now. But I don't know if they, I don't know if in 1966 it was available. But that didn't really matter so much because later that same year. The U.S. did the same and were able to capture both the Earth, most of it, almost all of it, and the moon mm. in the same shot. America had to up, up, you know, outdo the Soviets just a little bit. Of course, always. And it was the first to take an image of the whole Earth from a geostationary orbit. I guess the Soviet satellite wasn't in a geostationary orbit. They're on their way out. And so what the geostationary orbit is means that it's fixed to a single point on Earth. It's always like the Earth rotates and the satellite rotates with it. 
And so okay. to achieve what they did, they had to be uh, 22,300 miles away to get that. Jeez. So this was 1966. And they, from my understanding, is they didn't release that photo right away. And I don't know why. And here's where we have to talk about a guy named Stuart Brand. Brand was one of the Merry Pranksters. He was associated with Ken Kesey. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a writer and an environmentalist. And in 1966, he had an acid trip on the roof of his house in San Francisco because of course he did. <laughs> yeah. And he became convinced that if only people could actually see an actual picture of the whole earth, man, it would change <laughs> the way that we treat the planet, man. Oh my gosh, enough with the man. <laughs> yeah, I get it. He, Everybody probably read stuff from Ken Kesey when they were in high school. Yeah, so he was convinced that NASA had such an image taken by one of their satellites, but was keeping it a secret. And it, it was true, it wasn't true, I, I don't think so. But he, what we had before was, was just photo mosaics. You know, the earth pieced together from a bunch of different photos, right? So there was no one single photo. And he was convinced that if we had one, people would treat the earth better. <laughs> well, um, Brand made wrong. a bunch of buttons that read, why haven't we seen a photograph of the whole earth yet? Kind of a mouthful, not incredibly catchy, but he sold them for 25 cents a piece and he made a fuck ton of money. <laughs> Yeah, he did. He also sent a bunch to NASA, hoping they would release this rumored photo. And some were even sent to the Soviets somehow. I mean, why not hedge your bets at this point? Brand soon got his wish. Well, at least his wish was fulfilled. And his wish that it would, that it, well, his wish for the photo, his wish that it would make any difference on how the so-called greatest generation and then the boomers treated the earth that's, that's not been realized. It did not matter. In 1967, the U.S. satellite ATS-3 took a color image of the Earth and beamed it back to Earth. To achieve color, they used filters similar to how we color motion pictures like early on. You know, like red oh, filter, so yellow like filter. like how we did those. Yeah, um... yeah like the techni early, early Technicolor. Yes. Two strip, three strip, that kind of stuff. Yes. No no film, gotcha. it wasn't on film, but they could only beam back black and white images and so they did them through filters. And so this gotcha. was the first full color, full disc photo of the earth. And when they released it, Brand used it on the first issue of his whole earth catalog. That's It was even named after that. Uh, it was a publication with articles on self-sufficiency, on DIY, and reviews of everything from clothing to books to tools. Kind of a mess, but an iconic one. It's one of those publications that that I think, I don't know if it's still in print, but it's one of those that you kind of need to see. It, it was It's kind of fun. So at this time, 1967, there was a huge problem getting NASA to even realize the importance of photography. Prior to 67, the astronauts had zero training in, in, in photography at all, mm -hmm. none. Uh, when the Apollo missions um, sent were set to send humans away from the earth farther than they had before. So they had been, like, Apollo one through uh, seven was just real close to earth, you know, just get up there and, and fool around a bit. And space race. Well, with Apollo eight, that was the one they went around the moon. 
Okay. Okay. They didn't land, but they went around the moon. And so people started pushing like, well, you know, you, you ought to have cameras here and you ought to train them how to use them. And that's when Hasselblad, yeah. they were in the, in the, in NASA before, this is when they really came at this, like the astronauts are being trained specifically in these cameras. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so as a reminder, with the exception of the early V2 rockets and of the cosmonauts, the, none of these were film images still. Even the one that was on the whole Earth catalog, not a film image, but transmitted radio images. So Apollo 8. Apollo 8 is the first crewed spacecraft, crewed as in like peopled, spacecraft mm -hmm. to leave Earth's orbit. And that was Frank Borman, James Lavelle, and William Anders. Uh, Apollo 7 stayed in, stayed in Earth's orbit, but Apollo 8 left it and they orbited the moon, like I said. Along the mm -hmm. way, they took a bunch of photos, the, including... The first of the whole, uh, the first photo of the whole Earth, which was on December twenty first, nineteen sixty eight, the same day as the launch. All three astronauts claim to have taken it. Oh, how funny! Isn't it? Well, they well, well, no, no. Okay, wait. D they all had cameras, though. I'm assuming they all did not have cameras. They all shared a camera. Oh, oh no. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. If everybody took turns, and they probably all, uh, they probably all shot it, but. Apparently, researchers went through them and looked at it, and they, it was probably William Anders, who is the photographer. Oh my gosh, how funny. Yeah. So photography was important to the Apollo 8 astronauts, but never at the expense of literally anything else they had to do. It took a, a back seat. They only, and this is only in big quotes, they only took 865 images on that, on that mission, compared wow. to 4,000 that would come out in Apollo 17. Mm -hmm. And were they using those those big giant ELMs or yeah, ELSs it was with I, the 70 millimeter. The 70 millimeter. Uh, as far as I can tell, it was almost always the Hasselblad. Now they did bring in other cameras at some point, but I think they always also used the Hasselblad. Yeah. Well, I, I think X-Pan they did too, right? Like later on. They may have. In the 70s. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but what's curious is that in the Apollo 8, there are zero images of themselves. Oh, weird. Yeah, I don't know if like the lens just, I, they were using, I, I think an 80 millimeter. So you could, you could have, it was cramped quarters. So maybe, maybe not, but you'd think they would have something, even accidentally. Yeah, you'd think that you'd want to document that, but maybe they just were like, okay, this is, we're using this for a particular reason and don't waste any of the film. <laughs> <laughs> so NASA had been using Hasselblad since 1962 during the Mercury program. There's actually a really good book about photography and the Mercury program coming out in next month, the month after. I'm very excited about that. Ooh. Apollo 8 used the Hasselblad data camera, which is basically a heavily modified ELS. Mm -hmm. This mission also took Earthrise, which is one of the more famous photos. It yes. looks like it's from the moon, but it's hovering a little bit above the moon. So that's Earthrise. Mm -hmm. And that was taken on December 24th. And that was definitely William Anders. Everybody seems to agree on that. Mm -hmm. Now, Apollo 11. It was the first to land on the moon. You know, It took several shots of the earth from the moon surface and they were the first to do so. And everybody kind of knows those photos. Great. But it wouldn't be until Apollo 17 in 1972 that the first fully illuminated color image of the earth was taken by a person which seems kind of hard to believe. Yeah, that it does seem like- Well, Earthrise I mean, is half. 
because there's yeah, a bit of you know, right. the, the, the moon's shadow is in it. So this was fully mm-hmm. illuminated. And this was what's known as the blue marble. Oh, yeah. Okay. It wasn't taken on the moon. It was taken 1,800 miles away from the Earth on their way to the moon. Oh. And it's possibly the most widely distributed photo in history. It was shot. So if you Google, that's probably one of the first if you Google, images you're going to find you, out. If you Google pictures of Earth, yes, you're more than likely looking at blue marble taken okay. taken in, in, uh, in 1972. So it was shot with a Hasselblad using an 80 millimeter lens. And though Harrison Schmidt was probably a photographer, all of the crew, which included Gene Kernan and Ronald Evans, uh, are credited all of the all of the crew credit themselves all together with the shot. Okay, I like that. So they that. decided that like whoever takes the shot, we're all getting credit for it. And officially, that's how NASA credits the photo too. So when nice. you look at the photo, it is taken by Apollo seventeen crew. And I love that. love it. I, I really really I love do that. too. So that was like what that. was it? Nineteen seventy two. Yeah, nineteen seventy two. Wow, December seventh. No human has been that far away from Earth since that date. <gasps> Weird. Yeah. And so it was the last film photo taken of the entire Earth. And it will probably be the last. Yeah. yeah. I mean, unless NASA decides that, you know, this whole digital thing, you know. Is, eh, it would be neat if they would great. do a backup of some kind because they do still film their launches with film from what I understand. I could be wrong about that. And if I'm wrong about that, actually do message me and let me know. <laughs> I love, I love that you're telling people to message. I really hope people do. Too. Well, if, if they, if they have to, sure. Um, all, all future <laughs> photos of the whole earth that, yeah, they will probably be digital. It would be neat if Hasselblad <laughs> were to lobby for at least one of the future lunar astronauts to carry one of their future film cameras. Uh, Hasselblad, Ooh. if you're listening, maybe produce another film camera. Hey, yo. <laughs> so that's that. I was so excited to tell you all about this. And this, a lot of this information comes from the book Through Astronaut Eyes, Photography, photo, sorry, Photographing Early Human Spaceflight by Jennifer K. Levasseur. It is a book put up by Smithsonian and Purdue University. I'll be mentioning Purdue a little bit later in the episode as well. And check out Purdue University for, they have some really wonderful space books coming out. And if you have any interest in space photography, definitely check them out. They have um, two about the moon. Um, no, it's it's two coming out very soon. Um it is uh, moonshots and snapshots of Project Apollo and snapshots and space shots and snapshots of the Project Gemini and Mercury, both by John Bisney. So I highly recommend, well, I don't, I don't have those books yet, but I have a feeling I'm going to highly recommend them. They come highly recommended to me. So I would suggest getting them. Okay, so for this segment, we've got a hell of a treat for you. We are talking to Liz Potter and Amy Elizabeth. Uh, Listeners will absolutely be familiar with Liz Potter, but um, maybe not with Amy Elizabeth. She hasn't been on her before. This This is her first time. So welcome, Liz and Amy. Thank you for having me. Yes. Um, Well, Liz, 
start with you. What have you been up to yes. lately? Um, um, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. Uh, just like half an hour ago, cyanotypes, cyanotypes, uh, Sumitagashi busted out my pinhole camera again. A lot of stuff. All, all in a day's work. Uh, all, <laughs> a lot of stuff going on. Camping. <laughs> so the sun was out today. Oh, it was beautiful. Nice. Oh, I, I don't use the sun for cyanotypes. I'm too uptight. I gotta have controlled <laughs> environment. You do it in? Do you do it in your dark room? Yes. Uh, yeah, I have a, like a UV spotlight nice. thingy. It works. How about you, Midnight Amy? Do you cyanotypes indoors or do you do them outside? Uh, so I was doing them outside for for most of my cyanotype era. Uh, mm -hmm. Recently bought a UV light just because in Minnesota, you know, the winter sun sets at like 430. And I find myself most productive at night. Um, so it's not even about the control. Oh, the, it's going to be consistent every time. It's more for me. Once you hit, like I put my kids to bed, my creative juices, like that's it. That's when I want to work. And so the UV light was more for convenience than control. Yeah. So, like since that. this is your first time on Amy, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like how'd you get into yeah. photography and what do you do? Yeah. So, um, film photography was something that I started in high school, high school, dark room, fell in love with it, did the whole digital thing. Um, and then it was really, it was honestly, I was in a urban outfitters, saw the Diana mini picked one up. How fun, how nostalgic. Um, and slowly just kind of got back into film, joined a Facebook group that was really active called film mama. Um, met a lot of people from that really started my film Renaissance. And in 2000, God, I want to say 17, I ended up with, uh, I feel like people get jealous. Okay. It only scans <laughs> 35 millimeters. So let me preface it with that. But a Noritsu. Oh, and yeah. One, yeah. <laughs> it's, I feel I, I feel bad telling people I have one. Um, and once I got that, it I just everything, it was all film all the time because I felt like I had this piece of machinery that cost was almost a fixed cost. I felt more free to experiment. And that's when I really dove all in. Nice. Now, and what do you what do you normally photograph? What's your normal subjects, and how would you describe yourself? Mm. So I think you know when I first kind of made that you know that swan dive into film, it was my kids. You know, as a lot of us, like I, my kids were my subject. I wanted to document our every day, and I was doing clients, so like families, seniors, mm -hmm. newborns. And as my kids have grown, I have found that one, they're a little resentful of always having a camera in their face and I don't blame them. So I try not to stick a camera in their face all the time, but I really started moving toward experimental photography. And especially when the pandemic started, I was feeling so stuck creatively, taking the same walk twice a day, every day. It was like groundhog day. And I couldn't figure out how in the world am I going to create when there is nothing new. So I wasn't being inspired by things around me, but I knew that I could create new things by doing new things. And so I really 
dove more into film soup, um, ended up starting a lab for film soup. And from there it was just, I had already been doing light leaks. Um, and I just started experimenting. Well, what happens if I do these multiples or intentional camera movement or film soup or, um, just experimenting with all sorts. And so now I view myself more as uh, creating for the sake of creating versus creating as um, with film, at least to document. Yeah. I, I actually use my iPhone a lot to document nowadays. Mm-hmm. So well, along with that, you also write. I pretend to be a writer. Yes, that is true. <laughs> well, you do write, so I would call it a writer. I, mean, yes. I do. I write words. Yes, <laughs> I type words. I am a. I am a word. I'm a typer of words. This is true. Oh, <laughs> uh, you keep a journal on your website, like a blog type of thing. And what, that's actually what really caught my eye. You posted an an article called the uh, the fallacy of the sunk cost fallacy. Now, is this a typical article that you would publish? What do you What do you normally do there? I mean, this is a newer undertaking. Um, I think just as I am finding myself really drawn to pairing words with images or kind of describing my process or what's on my mind, um, I I was trying to push myself to to write just as a, as a creative outlet. All creativity, I feel, is very mutually beneficial. And so, and I also need deadlines. Like if I say, oh, I'll do this one day. It will never happen. So I'm like, okay, I am going to try to do an article a week. Now don't look because now I'm two weeks behind, but I'll, I'll get back on that horse. Uh, and so it's, it's, an, it's just another way for me to be creative. And so that is kind of a typical article of really it's whatever's on my mind. And a lot of times as synchronicity would have it, it, things will just align. I'll be like, I'll we'll, pr- we'll probably talk about something here that I will then turn around and turn into a post or an article. And this is how I've just been operating is feeding off what I'm reading, what I'm talking about. And it all, it all comes together. Do you feel like that too, Liz? Like just your, I mean, cause you're kind of immersed in what you do all day long. So you kind of live and breathe being creative, which is, you know, I'm not worthy. That's amazing. Um, how, how does, do you make certain decisions to, to kind of keep that motivation going or do you just kind of just go with the flow and hope that it stays? <laughs> uh, you mean go with the flow as far as uh, a reason I'm doing something or, um, cause like Eric said, I, I'm a big projects person and, a lot of times my projects depend on what my goal is. Like uh, if I'm going to do a show, then I I have that deadline and I'm working on a body of work, but like, I can't, it's hard for me to work on one thing at a time because whenever I'm so immersed in one thing, it's, it spirals into all these other things. And so I feel like it's almost like I may be working on one or two major projects Side projects are almost like studies so that when, it, when I'm ready to like really dive into that, then I've done a little bit of work. So it's not like, okay, now I have to start from scratch. And uh, Eric actually sent me Amy Elizabeth's article because I think he knew I would enjoy reading it and probably agree, which I do. And so <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to talk about that because I think that 
plays into what we're talking about now is like uh, projects and when to give up and when to dig deeper. And I yeah. think well, the, the article in question is, is the fallacy of the sunk cost fallacy, which is a catchy title. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of logical fallacies. And so for those who don't really know what we're talking about, as far as logical fallacies go, Logical fallacies are common errors in reasoning that will undermine the logic of your argument. Fallacies can either be illegitimate arguments or irre uh, irrelevant points and are often identified because they lack evidence that supports their claim. That is an, that's a definition from Purdue University. Uh, logical fallacy you, I guess. Uh, I've been into Purdue <laughs> University lately. I don't know. It's the space stuff. Uh, these these things include stuff like the straw man argument, ad hominem attacks, appeal to nature, and like a, a bunch of other things. I will direct everybody to yourlogicalfallacyis.com. Wonderful website. Um, other folks believe that the sunk cost fallacy is what's known as a confirmation bias, which is similar to like a placebo effect. It's a cognitive bias. Um, so... Amy, can you explain your your definition of what the sunk cost fallacy is? So if somebody was going to say, what is sunk cost fallacy? I would say to them in my very non-eloquent way, it's like feeling the need to double down on something that just is not going great. So you've sunk $1,000 into something and you're thinking, I we so we are more motivated by, you know, losing money. Um, so you've already lost the money. And so you're like, okay. And so you're like, how do I, how do I, how do I get this back? And so you double down and you keep going, even though what has proven to not work, why would it keep, why would it all of a sudden work? Um, that's kind of how I would, in a nutshell, I'm not Purdue. So <laughs> this is like the annual, the, amyelizabeth.edu, if it's not taken, it, it might be after this because this could be my next move. Well, yeah, I mean, that's essentially it. You, you've you sunk, and, and usually it's money, but it's not all, it can be time or, right. or whatever. You've sunk something of yourself into a project and it's not going well. And so instead of cutting ties, you, you do, you double down because like, why, why not? Why can't I just do this? When Logically, you would be, I think in your article, you even you even say something to the effect of, uh, it's probably smarter to cut bait and try something else. It will end up taking less time, provide less frustration, and will most likely and you'll and you'll most likely end up happier. So those are all very good reasons to not continue on. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't edit. I don't proofread what I post out there usually. So this is like hearing something for the first time. Cause I don't, I don't remember this. <laughs> well, that's what this you said. Great. And, Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but the whole thesis of your article is, well, it's the fallacy of the sunk cost fallacy. So yeah. you're saying, fine, that's, that might be great sometimes, but in art, it may not necessarily be the right thing to just cut ties. Mm -hmm. Why? So I think what I notice is people in art, there's just this almost giving up a little too easily. Like, oh, that didn't, that didn't work out. And, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm just gonna give up. And what I love is this idea of keeping going because a lot of times, especially in the constraints in art, 
is when we do our best. And so maybe you don't have, you know, for instance, I, I would say this is related. Mm-hmm. I was out with a friend um, and all of a sudden I had a camera on me as I do. And I had a 50 millimeter lens. It's just what I had. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh my goodness, the moon. And I turned around and there was, it was the night before a super moon. I did not have the lens I would have wanted to have. I was not prepared for no. this. So I think sunk cost fallacy is like, well, don't, don't keep going because you're not, you're not this, you're not equipped yeah. for, you know, don't waste your film. Don't waste your time. But instead I said, no, I want to, I want to document this. So how can I live within the constraints and keep going? And I created like one of my favorite shots of the year hmm. by moving forward instead of just saying, well, too bad. I guess I'll just, I guess I'll just enjoy it with my eyes. Like all these other schmucks. Like, no, I want to <laughs> capture it. And so can I, you did. imagine just enjoying it with your eyes. Oh, that, it's such that's a the worst. Must document. Must. Take picture. I can't. I was thinking, like, oh, wouldn't it be neat to do a hike? And I didn't take a camera with me. I just enjoyed nature. And like a second later, I'm like, what the fuck am I talking about? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that would be hard. <laughs> Why would I do that? No, I don't. Know. Hard, impossible, <laughs> impossible. <laughs> I feel like that's like a whole other topic. I could go oh. on forever about. About that, because I find so much, I am a total apologist for always having a camera on me. Like you cannot convince me otherwise. Maybe you could, but (laughs) I'm also really stubborn. So I probably wouldn't let you. Well, that stubbornness, I think when I read your article, I thought, I don't think I give up on things because I'm so stubborn. No way am I going to give up on something. So I just set things aside. I don't stop them. I just shove it to the side because I know that at one point, another idea is going to come where I need the supplies that I sunk into a project that wasn't going well. And now I have it. Or some element that I learned that I was like, well, that's not really what what I thought it was going to be. It's like, I just store it away pull it back out when I'm ready to use it. So, I mean, the whole premise sure. of this is then stubbornness leads to success or at Always. least potentially. <laughs> it never fails. It never fails. It never fails. <laughs> so how would you define success in art? Not Don't ask me. <laughs> I got really quiet. <laughs> I know he gave me the hard question. Well, I I'm think like, both oh. of you know this. <laughs> you both seem very <laughs> successful, and if and if stubbornness is the way you achieve that, what what is success, Liz? Well, I mean, personally, I think success is just feeling really good about what you're doing. You know, like I, the things that I work on, I love doing them, even if they're super hard. So I feel like it's just like a life success. I'm like, look what I get to do. This is fantastic. Um, And then success. I mean, I guess if you're talking like monetary success, (laughs) I I don't even know how to define that. Um, There's so many levels to that. Even I've been self-employed for a really long time. And I think that's a little bit of my drive is because I'm used to juggling a lot of different things that appeal to different audiences. I like doing all of them. So I don't 
control myself and try to pick like three. I want to do like 12. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm really answering your question. Next. (laughs) (laughs) I think think you're doing well enough. How about (laughs) Amy? Oh, okay. I I feel like my answer is going to go back to something that actually my next journal article is going to be on, which is this idea of the beauty of like, we never actually arrive um, and how there's a great comfort in that because there's always more to do. So success I find is more in those like breakthrough moments. Um, but it's never, it's never this like ultimate end goal because, and that's depressing. Um, a little. Just, it is. Yeah. Cause once you reach it, I actually was listening to this podcast the other day and in it, they were talking about Andre Agassi and how, when he was like at the top of his game, he was like, you, you win it all. And then what you just have to like keep going. And now you're just stuck trying to like stay at the top. And he started to shift his mindset and realize, well, but I'm, that's not my like purpose. My, that goal might've been there, but my purpose is to do these other things. And I think as an artist, I'm trying to figure out what is, what is my purpose? And in that, if you are creating out of that purpose, you just feel that success of I've done this. I, this has met this purpose and now I'm going to go and meet my purpose over here doing this. And so it is, it's these benchmarks that just kind of keep you driving forward. So it's more of a a state of being in a way than a point that you reach. Yes. Cause I mean, if you, if you, well, you publish a zine, you know, or like when I, when I publish something, it's like, okay, I, I really like what I publish. I'm like, this is great. I love this. This is wonderful. How am I going to top this? And so for me, and this is wrong, but for me, success came <laughs> at publishing this thing and immediately went away because I know that I'm going to have to top it. So success right. has been, you know, I've, I've, I've pushed it away. Like you're reaching for something, probably a candy bar. And yeah. you grab it, a bit, it slips out of your fingers and it goes a little farther away. So you reach a little bit farther and you're, you're never, ever going to get that candy bar. And it's sad. Is this right? I, okay. I have a lot of Amy facts, which are very dubious facts. And this okay. is, I don't remember exactly a lot of people, you know, hashtag Amy facts is the thing you'll, you might run across. <laughs> um, this, I, this, I know this is a true thing. It might've been Bill Belichick, but I'm not sure, but it was an prominent NFL coach. Okay. And it's like they won the Super Bowl and they're like, well, what are you going to do next? Or how are you going to celebrate? And it's like, that's it. He gets that one day. And then the next day he's turning around. He's not even enjoying the moment. He's like, well, now I got to do it again. Like I, and that to me is, is a depressing way to live. I prefer to say, wow, this met my purpose. Now I get to use, do my purpose, meet my purpose, doing something else. And that's exciting Mm -hmm. where if you're like, this was great. How do I top it? I feel like there's that to me is a mindset where you're setting yourself for like, what does topping it mean? Right. Well, with, with sports, you have, you have a very definite goal of what that, what topping it means. It's a, it's very well-defined. And what you said sounds like Belichick because he seems like a miserable human being. That's, that's why I thought yeah. it was him. I really think this might be a real Amy yeah. fact this time, you guys. <laughs> he does. He seems horrible. But you, hot, hot take on all through a lens. <laughs> We're getting controversial now. <laughs> but yeah, we, you have a definite 
what is and isn't success in a sport. You win, you succeed, you lose, you don't. But in art, well, that's that should be different. I guess you can win a photo contest, which has always made me think photo contests are kind of silly because winning at art seems like something we shouldn't be doing. It's just something we, it's a road we shouldn't go down. Probably a discussion. Art. <laughs> that's amazing. Winning at art. Well, that's what you do. Well, right. When you enter a photo contest, it's like, oh, I got first place. Oh, congratulations. You won at art. In a very subjective thing. It is. It's, it's a bizarre, it's right. bizarre what we do. I don't know why we do that. I mean, I, I do know why. We're, we're human and, and, and highly flawed. I think, yeah, I think the human part is we want to compete, I guess. And it's weird because you can't really do that with art unless it's like success, right? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you, yeah, if I don't get first place, what's the point? And that, and getting first place in, in, in art is, I I don't, it's something that we, we, we dreamed up because artists are really shitty at sports. That's the only reason (laughs) that I think is true. (laughs) I won first place. Like, oh, good, good job. That's not a thing in art, by the way. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Your, yeah, your pictures that's were the... much faster than mine. Well, and I think this is a really interesting topic as far as things like social media go, because what is success? And I've talked about this with people of, you know, the Instagram algorithm, it will, some days it will kind of shine on you, you know, like not really. And then some days it'll just crap on you. Mm-hmm. And so what is success for me on some, something like a social media, which is the primary way that I get my art out there. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, I am such a words of affirmation person that if even like one person reaches out and says, this affected me or I resonated with this. That to Mm -hmm. me is success because I want my art to intersect with other people and meet them where they're at. I'm not going to say how it should meet them or where it should meet them, but if it meets one other person, that's like, that's great. That's all I want. Absolutely. Unfortunately, the way Instagram works is that the higher your like count, the more people it's reached. And then the more likelihood there is of somebody being affected by it. And so when nobody says anything and you have one of the lowest like counts of, of in, in recent memory. It's just like, wow, I suck twice as hard now. <laughs> and it's, it's, it is, it's a horrible thing. Cause I mean, we talk about what's success in art, but what's, what's the opposite of success? Defeat, I guess. What's defeat in art? Oh, and, you would stop photographing or you stop creating art. I don't, I don't know if I agree with that though, because I believe that if you don't want to, if you don't want to art, don't, and then that's fine. I'm I'm a big believer of if something is something inside of you is telling you I don't need to take photos anymore then then don't don't yeah. don't push it. Now if you're that goes back to the fallacy of the sunk cost fallacy where you say something a, a little different than that but I think it's in a different context mm-hmm. where Amy you're saying to push through. So explain what that is. Yeah, and I would say you're right it is different because I'm also a big believer in the ebb and flow of creativity. Yeah. And so to, to honor the ebbs, um, and sometimes that might mean putting down your camera or, you know, it might mean pivoting and saying, I'm going to work on this form of art for a while or whatever. We are creative beings. We're going to create whether or not we are creating photos. Yeah. Um, so the, I, I got myself on such a tangent. I don't remember what your question was. <laughs> well, it was, it was merely to explain the thesis of your article. <laughs> <laughs> when you're okay. when you are That's on a project, when you're on a project, and yes, you're at that point where you remember the sunk cost fallacy exists, and you go, "I'd be happier 
if I wasn't doing this? Right. Yeah. So at what point? Yes. Yeah. Um, that is a great question. At what point do you know you should cut bait? Um, and I think, yes. And Liz raises a great point of there are times where you put it aside, but I would say, don't, don't ever like cut bait on it because you never know when you're going to round to it. But if you have like this, for me, I'm thinking if I have a deadline, like when I, I, I am a guide for this group I have created and in it, we have actual deadlines because I know I need deadlines. Mm -hmm. Otherwise I just, who knows what's going to happen. Same. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I think there's, I think there's a lot of us. Um, But so at what point do you know? And I think, I, I don't, I, I guess I haven't really thought about at what point do you know? Okay. And so I'm, I'm processing out loud right now and I might regret what I say. Um, so don't hold me to this. We're going to put it in pencil. But I think, I think a lot, I think far too often we stop when we should keep going. Like I, I can't think of a time in art where I, no, okay. No, I, I have gone too far. I will say that on my for, so on my first submission, the sunk, the picture actually mm-hmm. on the sunk cost fallacy, okay. I kept going after that. So I decided I wasn't sold on the blue. And so I toned it, but before I toned it, I scanned it. Cause I said, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to honor this. I'm going to keep going even further. And I got to a point that was too far. And so that ironically, that physical piece doesn't even exist anymore which is interesting because as a photographer, so much of what I post online is not even physical. And I post something that's physical and it's not even there. I think it's really hard to keep going too far. Okay. But you said, but you think you did with, well, okay. Yes, that's true. But I documented. So I was able to back up. Well, that's Um, so, that's kind of fascinating that in the article about just go for it, just go as far as you'll go. You did. And you're just like, nah, it was too far. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's better to know than to not know. Do you know what I mean? Like you went farther, but then you're like, oh, it's too far. And you just pulled Mm -hmm. back. And that's, that was the good spot. Yeah. And I, yes. And I did, I I went further knowing specifically that I wasn't convinced going further was the right move, but I, I knew that I had a scanned version. So, or I could recreate it because I had. The negative. Oh, sure. So it wouldn't be exactly the same, but it would be similar. Yeah. I would say that I think I do that too. I think I take it a step too far usually. Um, <laughs> but I do that now because I feel like I am, I've always not taken it all the way in my life. I mean, I'm, I'm 40 and I love photography I've been doing it since high school and there's always been this like weird, this weird kind of place I've been stuck for some reason. And it's mostly just, I think probably because I'm like, Oh, I'm not good enough. Or maybe, you know, what's professional, what's amateur, what's this, what's that. And then I'm thinking about everybody else instead of myself. And I've tried to redirect that into just creating for myself and, and doing it because I love it. Um, and not, and that's successful in a personal way. You know what I mean? Like that's, that would be successful 
because I am changing, you know, bad habits in my life to, uh, and then creating on top of that also. So yeah. That's all I got. <laughs> no, I love it. I turned 40 this year. I feel like there is so there is something so like sacred about turning 40. I don't know what it is. I the the wisdom the wis the years of wisdom <laughs> have they I don't I you yes, mean ahead I am, of you? <laughs> no, I mean there's more ahead. But there is something I know there's more ahead. But there is there is like I don't know what it is. There is this now I'm going to do things how I want to do them. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going to live the life that I want to live. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is freeing. Well, I think when, yeah. when not to get too far off the subject, but I think when our parents turned 40, turning 40 was a very different thing. I remember my dad had, he turned 40, which means he's well younger than me at this point, but they had like, black crepe paper, creepy paper all over. And paper, like it. over the hill. And over the hill and like the tombstone and all of that. And it was like 40. And I was like, you're, you're, you're done. You're essentially dead now. Yeah. You're done. Well, we live longer now. No, we don't. <laughs> no, I think kind we of. live less now. I think, I don't think, I think the, the, the life expectancy has gone down a little bit. Really? A little bit. Yeah. 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 We're, we're, not doing well as a nation. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. But we're, we're, we're younger, longer for in, in yeah, good yes. ways and bad ways. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So, um, <laughs> going back, one thing I, I want to know is you cut to that point when you're in a project and you're this close to just saying, F it, I'm done. I, I've, I've, a lot of money in this, a lot of time in this, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in this, but it's it's not worth it anymore. I can't do it, uh, or shouldn't do it. And your your article is saying, well, do it, do it anyway. What are the benefits of just just keep going? So I'm not done with it, but I am I am in the middle of the artist way. You know, oh yeah, queen, yeah, Cameron, Julia right? Cameron. Yeah. Yes. And she talks about the the creative U-turn and how as we're going, we'll kind of brush up against this spot in which we feel really uncomfortable and we want to U-turn it back. Mm-hmm. And how that's usually that spot where we're brushing up where it's really uncomfortable. If we push through, that's like where the breakthrough is going to happen. And so I would also argue that 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 point of friction to give up there would be doing a U-turn. And so if you're willing to, to take this and push forward, that there could be a lot of personal growth and creativity and cause you're, you're at a stuck spot Yeah. and necessity is the mother of invention. And that's the only way to be creative is to be in a stuck spot and take what you have and make something new. And so I would, I would argue that being uncomfortable can often be a good sign that you're on the cusp of something. Mm-hmm. Do you do you experience that, Liz? Being uncomfortable. Well, <laughs> I'll take that as a yes. She's like, well, she is a camper, but, but... <laughs> um, but being stuck, she in thrives a... in being uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> no, I. I, I think creative people do. I've been being comfortable. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't 
ever feel stuck, I know that sounds so obnoxious, but it's, I think it's because I'm doing so many different things and I'm like, this is bugging me. I'm going to start, I'm going to work on this now. Or like, like and sometimes I just know shifting and giving a little bit of rest to something. Cause I'm like working, working, working. I'm like, this isn't working out or I don't understand it. And why do I have to keep watching these YouTube videos on how to do this? And I don't understand how to do it. And then I'm just like, maybe I need to go back to something that I know and is comfortable to give myself a break, but I'm still creating and I'm still working on like another project. And then it's like something falls into place. And I mean, it's like the cyanotypes. I'm like, I don't, I've never been interested in doing them ever. I'm like, whatever, there's blue pictures. So, and then I thought of a project that I needed to do something like that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, kids do this at camp. I can do this. Oh my God. I got this book <laughs> and I looked at it and I was like, do I need a PhD to do cyanotypes? <laughs> and so Christina Z. Anderson, oh my God. So I looked at that last year and I was like, I don't understand. And then I, I finally started doing it. And just last week I pulled the book back out and it all started to make sense. And so it's like, it's that coming back around, but like, the more you do it, the more you understand it works. Yeah. So like, I think that helps in not giving up yeah. is like, Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. It's worked before. And like, if it doesn't work, who cares? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I I'm a big fan of who cares. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you're more, Eric, I would say you're more finished the hat type. I am. You, uh, I am I very finished. I I couldn't see you. I think it's hard or difficult for you to to stop a project. I think you want to. It is. It is incredibly. Finish. I I'm gotten a lot better. There is. I never want to finish. <laughs> there is this, and where the, where the finish the hat thing comes from is a Stephen Sondheim musical called Sunday in the Park with George, and it's about George Seurat, the 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 pointillist painter, and his relationship falls apart because he's devoting too much of his time to his art. In particular, he's doing, he's devoting too much of his time to finishing a hat. And he can't get the color right. It's red, is it blue, is it green, whatever. And it's pointillism, so it takes a long-ass time. And his, his girlfriend at the time, she wants to go to the Follies. And he agreed to go with her to the Follies. And she's like, are you going, George? He's like, going where? He's like, to the Follies. He's like, I have to finish the hat. And so there's like a whole piece about finishing the hat. So I've, I've I, I, I want to say I incorporated that into my life. I noticed that about my life that <laughs> I'm a lot like George Surratt in that way, where mm -hmm. I'm okay with tanking a relationship as long as I get to finish the hat. <laughs> that is not the way to do things. And so I have, I have curbed my ways in that way a, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> But I still want to finish the hat. <laughs> <laughs> Which we need. Well, I really love what. Oh, oh sorry, go ahead. Anya. I was no. going to say, I really love what um, Amy Elizabeth was saying about if you have a purpose. Like that really uh, hit home for me as like I knew it, but I didn't know how to put it into words. So hearing that was like, yes, exactly. That's. There's not really a goal. I mean, there may be a goal like, okay, I got to finish this deadline, 
but the purpose I, that really resonated because it's like, yeah, all the stuff I do, it's kind of the same purpose. So I think that is a way to juggle and not feel like you're failing because you're skipping around. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that's just me. Well, we're, we're about to wind down here. So how about, what? what is your purpose? Oh no, me? <laughs> Liz, what is your purpose? <laughs> well, I've been... <laughs> As of now, <laughs> I would say my purpose is <laughs> um, really to, to enjoy and believe in what I'm doing. And I think that so much of my work is based on my experiences in life and how much I have created a life that I love. I love where I live. I love what I do. I love camping and nature and the desert. and but my purpose, um, by sharing that, I feel like I get a lot of DMs. I got emails. I get cards in the mail, like liter- literal cards in the mail saying, wow, thank you so much. You inspire me. I want to try this now, or I want to go camping. or And so like that feels so good to like know that the work that I'm doing that's personal and meaningful is resonating with other people. Mm-hmm. So that's my purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Amy? <laughs> Amy? Yeah, I, I think mine is, um, I'd be I'd be curious to know what Enneagram you are um, as well, Liz. Uh, I, I would agree. I think my, to put it in a nutshell, my purpose is to use my vulnerability to empower others. Whether it's, you know, word, image, both. Um, conversation, teaching, empowering others. Can I just use all her answers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was like, same, 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 same thing. <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> well, what do you think? I, I think we solved everything here. I, this was lovely. I'm a fan. I am too. This I, I I'll count this as a success. This is this is my purpose. <laughs> Whatever this was. This so is we the get end goal. Again. What? So we get to do it again? I mean, yeah, at some point, sure. Okay, good. <laughs> well, Amy, Liz, thank you. thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for for this. This was really fun. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. It was, it was a great conversation. Great. I didn't feel too when you said the article in question, I was getting a little nervous about defending <laughs> myself, but I think it went okay. I think it went very well. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. It was really good. Okay, so we said this was our odd episode, right? We did say that. Okay. Well, our odd episode is still the episode we are going to do a zine review of course so eric what do we got today we have was it all a dream by stephanie gonzalez and this is the same photographer as the everything is so beautiful today zine i believe we reviewed that some time ago Mm -hmm. Uh, they also did a bunch of zines called hypochondria and so this is a, a zine 
of the first year of the pandemic, 2021. And you know me, and I'm, I'm always kind of a little down on like quarantines or, or things done because of the pandemic. And mm-hmm. this is an exception to that rule. I, it's, a, it's a full color, oh, full color so far, but there's a lot of urban exploration. There is some black and white. It's, it's a zine of a person walking around and traveling, probably when the most of us were sitting at home, not doing any of these things. But because there is a, a, an isolation, because we were, you know, quarantining or, or isolating, it's a very non-peopled zine. There's photos of houses. There's uh, street photos. There's a lot of signs. Um, do you ever do that? Do you just like walk down the street and go house shopping? I, I love to do that. It's something that I enjoy very much. Well, I don't know if this is house shopping so much, but, but, um, I think they're out of, I think they're out of New York and there, there's, I think some Coney Island photos from off season. Well, everything was off season then, wasn't it? And then we get to the protests and I'm not sure if this is in chronological order or not, but there are protests and we have a full spread of the Blue Lives Matter bootlickers with their American flags and their um, anti-mask photos. Cause that, that if supporting cops means you also are anti-mask, it's mm. uh, whatever. And so there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of, you know, keep America great hats and a lot of cops helping those people and, and maybe separating them from from the the other protesters, hmm. I think this may have been a counter the the the, uh, the back the blue or whatever bullshit uh, protest. I think it's a counter protest to um, I believe this was probably during the George Floyd protests, two thousand twenty one, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And so, so I think there's right. a lot of the photos of that. And you know, last week we talked to Ed about his protest photography, and so this is. It's a different take on protest photography, and I think that's kind of kind of wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we Honestly, move away from the. Pro- Excuse me. Sorry. I I do even even though it maybe seems fairly fresh in our minds. I think in uh, as time goes on, that zine and just those those moments, you know, are just will be more historical, obviously. Even now it has like a historical feel. It does. You know, I had to ask you, I was like, well, that was when we were doing this, right? Yeah, because well, time right. time during the pandemic is was bonkers. <laughs> it was a bit of a blur. Yeah. I think everybody would agree with yeah, that. <laughs> it was it was strange, but I do think there it does. It, it, it points to as a very certain part of our history here. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene moves on to, to through graveyards, through the the beach photos with seagulls and it, people walking with masks on. You know, it's it's definitely a a specific time, you know. And I yeah. think maybe the further we get away from it, it will mean less. But right now, it's a very like a, a quick look back, not that far. Yeah. And I I would. It's it's a twenty dollars zine, I believe, and you can get it on Etsy, and and I would absolutely recommend it. It's in some ways it's very East Coast. I do see some palm trees, so it's also 
either lower East Coast or these look like California palm trees. So maybe there was a, a clandestine trip to California at some point in 2021 <laughs> for Stephanie Gonzalez. But yes, I, I really do. I, I really appreciated this scene. I loved this scene. So if you can, we, we will have um, we will have her Etsy link in the uh, in the show notes. But there's also Gonza Graffiti, which is G-O-N-Z-A Graffiti.com. So check that out, and uh, and yeah, and please and please pick up the scene. It's very good. It's very yes. worth it. Authorial Lens is made possible by our generous and amazing Patreon subscribers. Through their small monthly donation, we are able to afford to keep the podcast running. <laughs> the Patreon helps on. us. <laughs> lights are on, you guys. Uh, but also by by pedal bike. Patreon helps us cover expenses for hosting, for audio equipment. It helps us buy books for research and zines to review, like the one we just did. Yeah, that's right. We bought this one. When you subscribe to us on Patreon, you do get monthly bonus episodes. You get full-length interviews. You get some random posts and photos and hopefully more and more extra nonsense, especially as the travel season heats up. Yes, absolutely. So we've got three different levels of support with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. So head on over and visit us at patreon.com slash lens for more info. Woo! Okay, music. Well, Vanya, we have reached the end of another odd show. No. Yes, and I don't exactly know how to end these. So let's try to end it. (laughs) I do not know how. We will just do the best that we can. What's coming up on the next dev party? Well... Next Dev Party, we are going to be answering some questions, right? I think we will. Yeah, we've got enough to keep going. So let's keep going. Awesome. Uh, So the answering machine was, do we need to repeat it again by chance? Uh, Well, no, I think we're good there. Okay. But yeah, if you have a, a question for us to answer on Dev Party, just message us, regular message on Instagram or email us if you like. We'll get it either way. Um, Vanya, what do you have coming up over the next week? Hopefully packing my things and moving. <laughs> we'll see. Hopefully. <laughs> I, I actually, this is going to come out after the weekend. So did I go to Policon? I don't know. We'll f- soon no. We'll soon find <laughs> out. Exactly. Uh, I don't know. It, the weather is still kind of iffy here, so I'm not sure what I'm doing, but uh, I, I do plan on doing a little bit of nothing and also having a little bit of fun, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Both of those things yes. are so wonderful. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, if you want to find us, we're at allthroughlens.podcast on Instagram. Um, Vanya is at Surf Martian. I am. You are. I am Surf Martian on Instagram, and uh, Eric is, I'm going to say it for him, 
at conspiracy.of.cartographers on Instagram as well. Yeah, and don't forget to hashtag your stuff. Hashtag all through lens podcast to be featured. We're on Spotify. We're on basically all the places wherever you're listening to this now. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you next week at Dev Party. Get those questions in. Yay! Bye-bye. We love love you. you. This camera, part of a flying laboratory, is recovered by Clyde Holliday of Johns Hopkins, who prepared it for its trip to the upper stratosphere. Rivaling the fantastic imagination of Jules Verne, the camera brought back a record of a flight into the heavens of a captured German V-2 rocket. At White Sands, New Mexico, the huge missile takes off. Air Force pictures show the rocket in flight and the flying camera automatically takes over. The huge projectile drops the Earth behind at the tremendous speed of 4,000 feet per second. The rotation of the rocket causes the planet to spin before the lens, and the camera photographs the Earth 65 miles straight down. The horizon, 720 miles away, and the curvature of the Earth are astonishingly apparent in this still picture from the film. An observer in the rocket could have seen San Diego, Salt Lake City, Kansas City, and San Antonio. Approximately 1,600,000 square miles of the Earth's surface was revealed. The rocket reached the 65-mile height in three minutes. This giant engine of destruction, designed by Hitler to annihilate allied nations, now serves the worthy cause of peacetime research.